Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good morning, everyone. It is Saturday, December the 18th, 2021. It is currently 1042 a.m. Central Time. I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church located right here in Ovalo, Texas, where it's cold outside. It's around 40-something degrees, light rain. Yes, the the beautiful 80-degree weather has temporarily gone. It's going to be chilly, I think, today, tomorrow, and then I think back coming in uh, this next week, we'll be back in the 70s and 80s, where it should be, right? It should not be cold, but it's cold outside and it's kind of cold right here. It's kind of chilly because we, we've been reviewing a, a sermon and my, my responses have been a little cold. It's been a little chilly because I've been a little, little frustrated with the sermon that we have been reviewing. So if you missed the last part, let me explain what happened. We're reviewing a sermon on Isaiah chapter 9 because this week we're studying Isaiah chapter 9 and I like to mix it up every once in a while by listening to how other pastors handled the text. So we've been listening. We, uh, two episodes ago, uh, we lis- listened to a Greek Orthodox podcast deal with Isaiah 9. Then in the last episode, we started dealing with a sermon preached in a church in Colorado. I was able to look this up. Uh, the name of the church is, uh, wait. I closed it out. Let me let me find it again. One second here. It'll take one second to find it. I just have to go to the Edify Christian Podcast app. I don't want to give you the uh, a wrong name here. Yeah, I, I kept it open. Lagos Central Chapel. Lagos Central Chapel in Colorado. All right. So that's the church. We've been listening to this sermon. Everything was going great. And then the file we were using, we got to around the 14-minute mark, and it just closed. So I went and found that file and started, and it, well, it was doing the same thing. So I started searching and searching and found out that they put their sermons on YouTube and found their YouTube page, and I've grabbed the audio from their YouTube page, and so now we're going to be able to finish this sermon out. Um, it was extremely frustrating. He he has completely ignored and obliterated the distinction between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, uh, between the, the different kings. He's referring to uh, King Ahaz as the king of Israel, not the king of Judah. He's placed this prophecy in Isaiah 9 in the 500s instead of the 700s, which would be really bizarre for it to be in the 500s since King Ahaz dies in the 700s, and he's referring to King Ahaz as being the king over Israel at this time, I mean, the whole thing is just an absolute train wreck. So um, we we pointed that out. I wanted to at least hope and and play the rest of the sermon to give the pastor the ability to maybe clean some of this up and 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 maybe we will uh, he will fix this. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to back this up to the 11 minute mark. Um, but here is the uh, there's nothing I can do about this. The audio from YouTube is extremely quiet. I have no idea why. I don't understand that. So many times when I listen to sermons from churches, I'm like, what in the world are they doing with their recordings? Okay. I mean, not that our recordings are perfect, but I try my best to make them sound as well as they can sound based off the equipment that we're currently using. But um, yeah, I don't know. So here's what's, here's what's going to happen. And I apologize here. Um, when I play the sermon, it's going to be very quiet. 
And then when I come in, I have a tendency to be very loud, okay? And I don't, I don't, I don't want to cause you great distress and do damage to your hearing and then get a lawsuit that you're suing me for ruining your hearing. I'm going to try to be very calm when I come back in. I'm going to try to be very quiet and then raise my voice slowly. All right, that, that's what I'm going to try to do. If the volume is just too low, let me know quickly because then I can just say, well, guys, we tried, we failed, all right? But um, yeah, it sounds so, so much lower than the other one. But I'm going to do my very best. So you may have to turn up the volume when you're listening to this sermon from Lagos Central Chapel. Okay, I think that's the, yeah, Lagos Central Chapel out of Colorado. Um, we're going we're gonna to allow them to, to, to proceed. I don't, know, I don't know how they can fix this sermon right now. There's been so many just clear biblical historical errors that it's, it's really bad. And, and you have to ask yourself, when a pastor is getting all of these things wrong, what, I mean, I don't want to, it's like, well, then what can you trust? But I can understand making mistakes. It just seems like some of these things are, like, can you make that kind of mistake to call Ahaz? The, I, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just being too, too critical, but here we go. We're, we're going to jump back into this. Isaiah 9, we're reviewing a sermon from Lagos Central Chapel out of Colorado. And what we are going to do is we are just going to, to jump back in. I'm not going to try to do a lot of review. I wanted to go back and work on Isaiah 9, 1 through 5, since he read verses 2 through 5 and ignored them. <laughs> I want to go back and work on them some more, but we cannot do that right now. We're just going to see where he goes. So are you ready? Here we go. Remember, the volume is going to be way low. I don't know why. I don't know why. If you work, if you work at your church, and uh, or if you go to your church, um, and and your pastor puts his sermons online, hey, about each week, nobody else in your church probably listens. Go listen, and if you notice a problem, let your pastor know. Okay, so so then it doesn't end up on the internet where it sounds like they're talking like this. Okay, and nobody can hear it because if you're putting your sermons online. The goal should be you want people to listen, okay, that, right? Okay. Whoa, that, um, um, that's uh, some brilliant wisdom from the Theology Central podcast. All right, here we go. He's going to come as a baby, and he's a son. And again, I, I can imagine the people hearing this prophecy about this child that's going to be born, all of a sudden their expectations of the hope that is given, this message of hope, that they're already beginning to interpret it in the way that is going to go well with them. I mean, they're, they're hearing this message of, of a son that is born, and so they're probably already going around and being like, okay, so he's going to be born into royalty. So maybe King Ahaz and his wife are going to give birth to a son, and this son that is born from King Ahaz or from any of the other kings, maybe this is the Messiah. And so imagine as the nation of Israel have all these kings and they're hearing this prophecy from Isaiah and all of these children are born from royalty, from the kings and queens, I can imagine that the, that the, kings, uh, the king's wise men, the king's uh, kind of scholars are probably saying, this is the child that Isaiah was talking about. King, this is, you know, King Ahaz, King Hezekiah, King, King whatever, Josiah, whatever king it would be, when they have a child, did you know that Jesus, 
that, 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 that instead of Jesus, that this child is most likely Emmanuel, that this child, this child is God. He is the Messiah. And I imagine that child being raised up, kind of thinking, okay, I'm, I'm this kid who is being prophesied by Isaiah. And so I could imagine, I could imagine the shock the shock that as, as each of these kings have children and they're... A lot of speculation. A lot of speculation going on here. A lot of speculation. Now, there's nothing wrong with throwing out... Well, I wonder if this was this way, but I just want to make sure. There's a lot of speculation. The text doesn't, you know... I don't know how the people responded to this. I don't even know how many people knew about the prophecy. I mean, he's acting like, like everyone knew. I don't, I don't know who knew. I mean, there's a lot of speculation there, but okay. All right. We'll, we'll, we'll just see. I'm just more worried about he, he's got the wrong time frame. He's got, he's assigning, uh, Ahaz is being king over Israel. He's, he's got just so much, and he's ignored context. There's so much going on wrong here. But let's see if he's going to offer something here that will we'll bring this all back together. Children grow up to be evil, to grow up and bring even more darkness that the people became very disappointed. They became very disillusioned. Again, Isaiah makes his prophecy, and we don't see Jesus being born for hundreds of years later. Isaiah makes his prophecy, and I'm sure the people who are hearing this prophecy, hoping for hope. They want, they want the Messiah to come. They don't want to be under the rule and reign of these other empires. They want to be free because they're the people of God. And so you would think God is going to save them. God is going to bring, bring them salvation. But it doesn't come for another 500 years. Another f- Why does he think? Why does he think it's 500 years? I... I know you're going to be saying it's no big deal. Uh, listen, I, we, we've got we've got to just we've just got to be honest with ourselves here, okay? First, I make mistakes with numbers all the time and dates, so I so I I understand making a mistake. I understand making a mistake, but even though I make a mistake, I hope I always own up that it's a serious mistake because whenever we're dealing with God's word, I know you're like, well, who cares? Five hundred, seven hundred. It's critical because it relates to so many things. If it's the 500s, Ahaz is not alive because Ahaz dies in the 700s. Okay, so that's number one. Number two, he's given, he's calling Ahaz the king of Israel. That's incorrect. And he's got the, he's got the wrong date. He's got the wrong time. He's got the wrong nation. He's got the wrong everything. All, he's dealing with God's word. He's dealing with God's word. It's one thing if I mention, you know, Remember in 1983 when this album came out and actually the album came out in 1984 or 1982? Okay, now yes, it's still incorrect. It's still not accurate. Um, and, and, as, and when you preach and you get something wrong, you want to correct it. But we, I think everyone will be a little bit more understanding or forgiving if I get the date of an album being released wrong versus getting things wrong that really relate to understanding the Bible. One of the, one of the things I, th- I loved about the Bible study exercise and the people who are participating this week is I think most everyone acknowledged that we really need a timeline here. We really got to understand the time, the time frame. And the fact that just your average lay people figured out, wait, we need a timeline. 
We got to figure this out. That was super encouraging to me. I didn't tell anyone that we needed a timeline. They figured that out. They knew that. They understood that. Well, how in the world can lay people know that we need an accurate timeline and a pastor is literally obliterating the entire time frame? He's completely just messing it all up. That, That is disheartening and frustrating and irritating. But we, 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 okay, I'm going to say something that's going to, it's going to make some people mad, but that's okay. I've been getting, I've been receiving emails over the last few days from someone who's very upset with me because I don't even remember when this, the, all the controversy started, but all the controversy started with, uh, Vadi Bokum, Vadi Bakum, however you say his name, I apologize. I don't have his name in front of me. So, um, but he wrote a book on critical race theory, if, if you don't remember. And in that book, there's a page where they give, they use basically what's called a block quote. And he uh, is quoting supposedly these leaders of critical race theory that they're saying this and they're saying this and they're saying this and they're saying this. And it literally makes it like, no, these are quotes from these people. Well, some people started reviewing the book going, wait a minute, that person never said this. That per- Where did these quotes come from? And the people he supposedly quoted, at least one, maybe two of them came out and said, I never said that. The person is either mistaken or just right out lying. It's wrong. And so a lot of people, are, well, you know, it, you know, it's not that big a deal. You know, it, it, he, you know, you make a mistake and, and, and quotes, it's, it's not real. And I'm like, no, as Christians, it matters that we get our facts straight. It matters that we speak the truth. It's, it's, it's human to make a mistake. So guess what you do? Hey guys, I messed up here and I quoted these people as saying these things. They did not say them. So therefore I bore false witness against them. I apologize. I have, I've asked my publishers that in the new edition to correct and clean this all up. And I'm trying to reach out to the people I supposedly quoted and offer my apology. It's no big deal. You just you just apologize and move on. But I'm getting people, you know, emailing me acting like oh, it's not that serious. And I think you're being unfair. Being unfair It's unfair to quote someone and say that they said something they didn't say. If CNN was on tonight, did a special about your pastor or your church and said, he said that we should kill babies uh, and, and you would be like, no, my pastor never said that. Well, you know, sometimes we make a mistake. You would be bothered. You want people to be accurate. And what makes it even worse is in that discussion about the book, and the quote and everything being wrong. Um, what one of the things that happened is I played a, an, an audio from a sermon where Vodi Vadi, I, I always say his name incorrectly, he he's preaching a sermon where he once again says, These people said these things. So now it's not even it's not even once he preaches it, now it's not a matter of a really weird use of the block quote. And, and uh, completely obliterates what who is stating what the way that book is written. Now he said it in a sermon behind a pulpit. That's serious. That's important. As pastors, we have to take it as serious as can. Now, we're not always going to get things right. It's, look, I say things in the Bible study exercises that I may get wrong sometimes. And I'll have to come back and say, well, I said this and that was in, uh, it correct. In other words, we have to be humble to acknowledge when we mess up and try to fix it. But it's, uh, it's imperative that we take these things serious. A lot of people hearing this criticism be like, so what? He said 500s. Who really cares? Who really cares? 
But 500s, you don't have King Ahaz. 500s, guess what? Not, not only that, well, there could be a lot of other issues there, but not only that, King Ahaz wasn't the king of Israel, it was the king of Judah. So, was, I mean, there's just so much wrong here. And he just continues to, to just, I don't know where, where he got this information. I don't know where. I mean, you can do a Google search for crying out loud and find out when Ahaz lived. I mean, I mean, it's not like there's like big, there's a big dispute on when he lived. It's a big dispute over who he reigned over. Those are basic facts. So if you get the basic facts wrong, then why should I trust you when you start offering biblical interpretation and application? And, and, and you, so I, I don't want someone, I, I want to make this very clear. I don't want you to turn into that person who just listens to every sermon and try to find every little mistake. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. We need to be godly and we want to get the most out of every sermon. Look, we're, I'm going to try to find any positive in this sermon and I'm going to praise it and, and make sure I point it out. But at the same time, we can't just overlook. So we got to have a proper balance. We listen to sermons humbly, taking whatever we can get from it, applying it and growing spiritually. At the same time, we have to listen to every sermon with a discernment to when things are incorrect, we note them and then in a very loving compassionate, caring way, try to encourage the pastor to maybe correct that mistake. And then pastors, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, we all must be humble enough to go, man, I messed up. I messed up. I'll never forget. It's to this day, it bothers me. Um, we, I think we're in Isaiah. And I uh, said the Hebrew word meant something. And I get a phone call uh, that, uh, that afternoon. And uh, one of the ladies in the church called me and said, that Hebrew word doesn't mean that. And I looked and I'm like, you are absolutely right. So Sunday night, guess what I had to do? I had to stand behind the pulpit and apologize to everybody. I was wrong. I'm very, very, very sorry. I should have looked it up. I shouldn't have went from memory. I was wrong. And I I explained what the Hebrew word was. I mean, it was embarrassing. And my male ego didn't like it. Now, but you know what? I'm thankful that that woman was willing to call me and say, hey, you, you, you got that wrong. Now, once again, it, 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 sometimes it says more about the church that it was a woman who called and not a man, um, because sometimes it's the women who seem to be doing more studying than men, which is sometimes very frustrating. But it, it, it bothers me to this day that I got it wrong. And I, there's been other situations where I've had to stand behind the pulpit and say I was wrong. It's embarrassing. I don't like it. I hate it. But, but you know what, the fact that I hate it probably says more about uh, ego and pride than it does godliness because I shouldn't hate it. I should welcome the correction and being humbled to apologize. I should hate the fact that I made the mistake in the sense that I should take it more seriously. But so, so these, the, the, it's just frustrating because he keeps saying, I, I just, these are just basic facts. I mean, the, the, none of this, look, there are complicated things in this pa- chapter. Just just trying to figure out chapter nine, verse one. Okay, who's being vexed? Who, who, who is being, who is uh, the ones in vexation? Who, who's being, who are the people who suffered vexation? Who was it? Um, is it Zebulun and Naphtali? Or is it these people? Like there, there, there's, there's some questions we could have here. In fact, I say I'm going to get ready and start working back through it. But I, there's some difficult passages, verses in nine, 
So, but you can never hope to get to the complicated verses if you're messing up the basic information that's not complicated. And that's why I told everyone in our Bible study exercise this week, write down what we do know. We do know Ahaz is the king of Judah. We do know that he reigned in the 700s and died in the 700s. We know that to be a fact. We know who the king of Israel was. We know who the king of Syria was. We know, know who the king of Assyria was. We know the, those are what we do. You see why I told you to make a list of all everything you do know about the passage and then write down all the things you don't know? Because if you have the things you do know clearly memorized and you know it, then you can never fall for any bad preaching and bad teaching because you're like, nope, I know that. I know that fact. I know that fact. And then when you're trying to figure out what you don't know, once you realize you're ne- you can't figure that out, you can fall back onto what you do know. So I, that's why I, I did that. All right. So I, I know I apologize. I'm spending too much time on this, but it just, oh, there's a lot of frustration with all of this. All right, here we go. 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. So their expectations are already thwarted. Wait, now he just said 400 years. What in the name of bubblegum is going? I'm going to back this up a little bit. What? Before he's done, he's going to be like, hey, they prophesied this 13 minutes before Jesus was born. <laughs> okay. Like, okay, I'm going to, I'm back to all the way up to 12 minutes, 54 seconds. Here we go. That Jesus, that, 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 that instead of Jesus, that this child is most likely Emmanuel, that this child, this child is God. He is the Messiah. And I imagine that child being raised up, kind of thinking, okay, I'm, I'm this kid who is being prophesied by Isaiah. And so I could imagine, I could imagine the shock, the shock that as, as each of these kings have children and their children grow up, to be evil, to grow up and bring even more darkness, that the people became very disappointed. They became very disillusioned. Again, Isaiah makes his prophecy, and we don't see Jesus being born for hundreds of years later. Isaiah makes his prophecy, and I'm sure the people who are hearing this prophecy, hoping for hope. They want, they want the Messiah to come. They don't want to be under the rule and reign of these other empires. They want to be free because they're the people of God. And so you would think God is going to save them. God is going to bring, bring them salvation. But it doesn't come for another 500 years. Another 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. Why did he go 500, another 400 he just jumped a hundred years, five hundred, another four hundred. Well, I, I don't. <laughs> another. He gave this prophecy a week before Jesus. What? What are you? I don't understand. 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 Okay. All right. Okay. All right. Let's just continue. So their expectations are already thwarted. And guess what? When Jesus comes, he doesn't meet their expectations even then. Again, they're expecting the Messiah to come as the Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor. But what you know, you and I know about Jesus and the Christmas story is that Jesus was born in a manger. He was born 
in a farm. He was born where the animals eat and they poop. And not only was he born in a place that was not fit for a king, he was born unto a woman, a born unto a very young girl, actually. She was most likely 13 or 14 years old. She was born to a young virgin. Okay, let's, uh, 13 or 14 years old. Okay, hang on. I think I just saw an article. I, I you know, I'm not saying this is the biggest deal in the world, but again, he, he's just making cl- lots, of, lots of claims here. Let me see here. I think there was an article. I think I saw this just the other day here. Okay, here we go. Yeah. Um, this is what we, okay. No, actually, it seems that uh, most historians believe that Mary was between the ages of 12 and 14. All right, so between 12 and 14 years of age. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, I think that's interesting. So that's good. That's good. He, he pointed out something that appears to be accurate. So that's very good. And, I, and I'm not saying that in a facetious, sarcastic way. That's awesome. I, 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 I don't know if I had forgotten that or, or if I didn't realize that, but that, that, that gives you kind of paints a picture of kind of what was going on, a 12 to 14-year-old girl giving birth. All right, let's continue. Virgin girl who wasn't even married yet. And again, imagine the shame. Imagine the shame of Mary as she is bearing the Prince of Peace. As she is bearing the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Almighty God, and the people around her are not, are not saying, oh, your child is going to be the Savior of the world. If I can use language, if I can use language that isn't inappropriate, but really means what it is, people probably looked at her and said, you're going to give birth to a bastard. We don't even know who really the father is because you're not married. Jesus wasn't born into this situation where he was given, he was given the glory that was due, that when Isaiah is making this prophecy, the people's expectation of the Messiah coming in is that he's going to come in triumphant. He's going to come dressed in gold. He's going to come in with all, all of the glory of God because he has these titles given to him by God Almighty, God himself. But we have to remember that a lot of what Christmas is, is humble expectations. Today's, today, the message for you is this, is that a lot of times your hope is placed on external context. Your hope is, ex, your hope is based on external circumstances rather than on the promise of God. Your hope is placed on things of this world rather than the word that God has promised unto you. When people met Jesus for the first time, he always, he always was not what they expected. And I know that sounds weird, but that's actually how it goes. And especially for the disciples. Jesus was not the guy 
was not the guy that they expected. And, and even the disciples who were closest to him, and they saw him do the miracles, they saw him do all these amazing things. I mean, imagine just being Peter. And as you're Peter, you're seeing Jesus feed the 5,000. You're seeing Jesus heal the sick and give sight to the blind and raise people from the dead. Imagine being Peter, and as you are walking into Jerusalem, as Palm Sunday is happening and all the palms are, are, are being put down on the ground and Jesus is, is entering into the city of Jerusalem, and people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peter's probably thinking, all right, finally, it's all paid off. All of the hard work and all the things that we've been working these past three years, we're finally going to get our reward. And imagine just being Peter and the other disciples as Jesus is walking into the city and as he's going in on the donkey and all the palm leaves are being, are, are being laid out and Peter is just being like, yeah, I was there from the beginning. I was there, and I saw him. He called me. I'm one of the disciples. How awesome that is. But the thing about Peter is that his hope, his hope before the death of Christ was based on external circumstances. Now, here's, uh, man, what, what, what do we say here? Um, he, this is, again, one of these situations where it's not necessarily that he's saying anything wrong. You could even argue there's some good application here. The problem is we still don't understand Isaiah 9. We still don't understand the historical context. We still don't even know what's going on. And the very after the prophecy of a child being born, uh, a son is given. Um, in, verse, in verse 6, then we have verse 7. Um, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. After we have all of that, then immediately the text is like, uh, the Lord sent a word into Jacob and he hath lighted upon Israel. Okay, and then as one Bible d describes the next section, the Lord's anger against Israel. We still don't know what in the world's going on there because, well, we can't seem to get anyone who actually wants to preach the actual text. Now, I'm not saying that there are pastors and churches that do, but there's so much of this out there, and it's just so frustrating because you're like, no, we need to understand this prophecy. And it, it's like, he's just immediately just, he's forgotten Judah, or as he keeps saying, he hasn't even mentioned Judah. He's forgotten Israel of then, and now he jumps to the New Testament. He jumped 700 years without ever still trying to figure all of this out in its historical context. So, all right, let, let's, let's see. I think the rest of this is just going to be application, application, application. I don't think he's going to do, he may go back and do a little bit of work on the names. Maybe, we'll see. Rather than the word of God. Because Jesus kept telling Peter, Peter, I'm going to die. Peter, they're going to kill me. Peter, I know that they're, they're welcoming me in as king, but a few days from now, only, only half a week from now, they're going to kill me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. And, and Peter says, no, <laughs> that's not going to happen. There's no way you're going to let that happen. There's no way that you can die because you are the king of kings. You are the Lord of lords. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. Imagine being Peter. 
Imagine being Peter in that situation. He's, he's probably thinking, he, he's like, what, what, Jesus, you fulfill all the prophecies that Isaiah is talking about. You fulfill all the prophecies of the Messiah. I've seen it with my eyes. I've seen the power that you have, that you can raise people from the dead even. You can heal anyone you talk to. The words, the way that you interpret the scriptures, only the Messiah would be able to speak with that kind of authority. What do you mean you are going to die? You can't die. Peter's hope was based on the external. And the reason why people on Palm Sunday were welcoming Jesus in was because they thought Jesus was going to overthrow the Roman Empire. The external expectations was that Jesus, as he is marching in and and being triumphant in his entry into Jerusalem, was going to come out and his crown of gold was going to come on his head and he's going to have a flaming sword and even Caesar himself would have to bow before Jesus. Because the way that they're reading this passage is that the government is going to be on his shoulders. That the government of Christ of the Messiah is going to grow forever. Okay, now, now, now we are getting into something hopefully very important. So now, now I'm getting excited. This is exactly one of the big issues when you're reading Isaiah and all of those Old Testament prophecies. So let me work, walk you through them again. Okay, so we have prophecies of Jesus that we take to be very literal. A literal virgin will have a literal son who will be called Emmanuel, God with us, because he is the literal incarnated eternal son of God that, that we believe all that to be very literal. He's going to, he's going to be born in a specific place in a specific region. All of that is literal, literal. All of these people in Isaiah seven, eight, nine, Ahaz is literal king, Judah, Israel, all, everybody, everything in the text is literal, 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 literal. And then all of a sudden we'll come to some parts of the prophecy. And like, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's going to, he's going to destroy his enemies and he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to rule and reign for, okay, okay, wait, time out, time out, time out. Now we insert not literal, spiritual. That's going to be a spiritual kingdom. That's going to be the church. That's going to, and you're like, whoa, time out. Why is all the other part literal and that part figurative or spiritual or allegorical or whatever words you want to use for it? Every good Bible student and everyone who reads the Bible should raise their hand and go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. And so we have a couple of options. Either we just go with, this part's literal, this part's spiritual, and we get to be the ones who make that determination? Or we go, well, wait a minute. If everything else was literal, there has to be a literal fulfillment for this as well. And then we say, Jesus came, right? Literally, he did set up a spiritual kingdom. That is true. But these other parts of the prophecy will literally be fulfilled when Jesus does return, literally, physically and goes into Jerusalem and sits upon the throne and fulfills all of these prophecies. You either have to, you, I mean, those are your options. You just say parts of literal, parts spiritual, and you decide which part's spiritual, or you have to say all of them have to have a literal fulfillment in some way, shape, or form. Don't know when, don't know where, don't know how. Now, I'm not, when, if the text is clearly using figurative language, then okay. If it's clearly using allegorical language, then okay. But you have to make sure you can demonstrate that 
clearly. So I agree that the people at the time would have been like, we're waiting for the actual king to come and do all of those things. And the reason why is because they read, they knew those scriptures. Now, the question is, was their understanding of the scriptures wrong or did they just have the wrong timing? We'll see which direction he goes here. And ever, and so their expectation was on the external circumstance rather than what the word of God really was saying. So he's arguing that their hope was on external circumstances and not the word of God because they didn't correctly understand God's word. They, they, they had God's word incorrect. Okay, so now I'm waiting for him to give us the correct interpretation. Of, now remember, <laughs> those people had God's word wrong. So, so he's going to tell us now what is the correct way to understand the text, even though he's given us the wrong date, he's identified the king being over the wrong nation, even though he's got all of the, but he's getting ready to tell us how we should correctly understand it, even though after he's demonstrated how he's missed and messed up actual literal historical facts. But now I'm waiting for this great interpretation here. Even though he's going to ignore the context, he's going to give us, see this, I cannot stress this enough. You can't jump to how to correctly interpret a passage when you haven't even worked through the passage itself. You you, you got to work through everything here, but he's just going to tell us how we should understand it. So let, let, I'm waiting for this. Here we go. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. I guess this is how we are supposed to understand Isaiah 9, 6 and following. Here we go. Jesus, we know, after his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, that on that Friday, he's murdered. And he's murdered on a cross in the most shameful way. That the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Lords, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor, he's put to death a criminal's death. He's given the death penalty. Or maybe we're not going to be told what it means. We're just going to be told that the people didn't understand it. They didn't know what God's word meant. But I'm not going to tell you what it actually meant. Okay. Maybe he's not going to tell us what it actually meant. Okay. I, 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 okay. Here we go. And just imagine being the disciples, knowing the prophecies. I mean, hearing it. I mean, everyone's kind of, pointing to how Jesus is fulfilling all these prophecies and all of a sudden Jesus is on the cross. He's dying. Their hope was crushed because their hope was based on the external expectations that they had of what Jesus was supposed to look like. Jesus. Okay, and I've got to at least challenge something here. Was their hope based off external circumstances or was their hope based off their understanding of God's word? If you're going to say their understanding of God's word was wrong, then it's not that their hope was on external circumstances. Their hope was in a misinterpretation of the Bible. If they misinterpreted the Bible, please give us the correct interpretation. If they're, Because their hope, it wasn't on external, in a sense, external circumstances as much as their hope was on their understanding of scripture. So if their understanding was incorrect, what is the correct understanding? was supposed to be victorious. How can you say you're victorious, Jesus, is if you're on a cross, 
If you're hanging on a cross, how can we call that victory? That is utter failure. Brothers and sisters, you will experience failure in your life. You will experience things that you will look at and you will say, this was utter failure. This was the worst. This was absolutely not how I envisioned things to go. I, I wanted success, and I thought God was going to bless me, but it seems that all I've gotten is failure upon failure upon failure. What I want to remind you of is that the disciples felt the same way. As they watched Jesus being beaten and bruised, and hung on a cross. He, so he's, he's completely forgotten the people that the original prophecy was to. He's, he's explained that the people in the New Testament were misunderstood, but he's not given us a correct understanding. And now it's about, hey, if you have failure, hey, the, the, the disciples felt the exact same way. <laughs> okay. I don't really know exactly what the thesis is of this sermon. I don't even really know exactly what the point of, clearly the point of this sermon is not to explain Isaiah 9. Clearly it's not. We got 14 minutes left. So, you know, now it's getting ready to transition following the basic sermon template. He did the break the ice, be relatable. Now he's going to have to drive home something emotional and something practical because you can't do that. The middle part, well, it wasn't exegesis. It, I don't know what it was. So here, here we go. That they felt that they had failed. They felt that God had failed. You see, the hope of Christmas, the hope of Christmas is that God has already written the beginning, middle, and end. That God knew that he was going to send his son in the form of a child to be the Prince of Peace, to be Everlasting Father, to be the Mighty God, to be the Wonderful Counselor. He knew he was going to be these things now and forevermore, but he also knew what this meant, is that he knew that Jesus the Messiah was going to bring an end to all sin, but not in our expectation. Jesus was not going to end sin with a flaming sword. He was not going to bring the end of sin with a crown of gold. Instead, he brought the end of sin with a crown of thorns and nails in his hands and nails in his feet being hung on a cross. God fulfilled his promise of a Messiah of the Savior of the world, he fulfilled it, just not in the way that we would have done it. He did it in the way to show us his love, to show us his kindness and compassion to us. Jesus could have easily come down with a sword and killed all the Romans. He could have easily come down and killed all the Pharisees and all the Sadducees. He could have come down and killed all the pagans, all the Gentiles, all the people without faith. And he could have easily mowed them down and been that kind of Savior. 
The kind of savior that would go in front of Caesar and say, Caesar, you bow down to me and I'll cut off your head. But no, we have a savior who instead of taking the sword to those who deserve the sword, took that punishment on himself to show his love. So the hope that we have is not a God of force, is not a God who is angry, who wants, who wants wrath to be his first name. But instead we have a God who loves us dearly, that he would send his son in the form of a child, in, a, in the form of a baby, to be sent to live for us and to die for us. When I read Isaiah and I read this prophecy, like many other prophecies in the Bible, I, I, I have to put myself in the situation of the people at that time hearing the prophecy. And, and you know, they probably had all these ideas of what the Messiah would look like. And, and imagine telling them, when they're thinking of this Messiah being like a superhero, being like, you know, in royalty, being rich and famous and, and well-liked and, and just the most popular guy in the world, that when they find out that the Messiah of the world is a carpenter from Galilee, when, when Jesus was this humble guy, not born into the royal courts of Jerusalem, but just an average dude. I, an average dude? Jesus was an average dude. Okay. He was an average dude. Maybe we should say... He appeared as an average dude, but he was true God and true man. I mean, he was the eternal son of God. I don't think he was the average dude. He took upon the form of a servant. He appeared as the average dude, but he was still truly God in the flesh. He, the average dude, like, okay, oh boy, oh boy. Okay, let's, let's just continue. We got 10 minutes left. Hopefully I make it to the end. In our lives, we put so much expectation on what God is going to do to bless us. In our lives, we, we, we put so much expectation when we pray even, when we pray for blessing. We tell God our plan and what blessing looks like for us. We say, God, do this, do this, do this. Please, but please do this, please do this, please give me this. Please let this happen and let this happen and let this happen. And I'm not saying that's bad. But what I'm saying is, is that a part of the joy of following God is that we don't dictate to God what he's going to do. Is that we humbly accept whatever he brings to us. And that means even if the worst thing happens to you, your greatest fear comes true, and it happens to you, God is still going to keep his promises for you. 
That's a beautiful thing. If you really understand this, it's a beautiful thing that will give you eternal and unconditional joy. Is that no matter what trials you go through, no matter what hardship you go through, is if you truly understand the hope that we have in Christ, is that no matter what circumstance you're put through, is that God is still good and He's still going to use your terrible situation for His glory and His goodness. That you may feel that you are on rock bottom. That things could not get worse in any way. But see, that's when God becomes most beautiful. That's when we become most sensitive to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's because when we're at rock bottom, we don't have anywhere else to go. We don't have any more expectations. We don't have any more of these false pretenses to think that God is going to do this or God is going to do that. There, becomes, there comes in us, when we hit rock bottom, a humble submission of, Lord, do whatever you want, because I clearly can't do anything myself. Lord, this situation is in your hands and yours alone. Let your will be done, not mine. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will be done. Because my will is just going to mess things up even more. But your will is going to work out beautifully. This is the heart that the disciples had to learn. And they, they learned it not seeing Jesus hung on the cross, they learned this attitude when they saw the resurrection. When they saw God raise Jesus from the dead and they were able to meet with him and eat with him and touch him, that's when they were able to say, all of my mourning has been turned into dancing because God can even defeat death. Do we believe in a God that can be defeated? I, I really want you to answer that question. Do you believe in a God that can be defeated? Do you believe in a God that, that, that can be... Do you believe in a God that can fail? Because I believe in a God that can never fail. I believe in a God that will always love and will always be good and is perfect and is just. I believe in the Prince of Peace I mean, this this stopped being about Isaiah 9 like 20 minutes ago. It, I, I mean, it all sounds great. It all sounds super spiritual. I mean, we, we could get into a whole host of, of, of questions here and, and, and things, but it's just, I mean, this is not a sermon on Isaiah 9. This is not a sermon on Isaiah 9. It really isn't. Isaiah 9 is simply a pretext for him to just get into, hey, you know, you can have joy when everything gets really, really bad. Don't be disappointed because God will keep his promises. Don't just just keep trusting God when everything goes really bad. That's my sermon today, and we just pretended to study Isaiah 9. We didn't really study Isaiah 9. Now, look, all preachers make this mistake. I've made this mistake so many times where— um, you, you, you have a text in mind, but you, you really have a topic in mind. And so what I've learned to do, and it bothers some people, is like if I just want to talk about the topic, I just talk about the topic and I don't 
pretend that we're studying a passage of scripture. I'm just like, we're going to talk about this subject and I'll just talk about it. And even if it's 45 minutes of just talking about a subject and we don't even really look at any scripture, if I feel like we need to discuss the subject, I will discuss the subject. Don't give it the pretense that we're studying Isaiah 9 when we're not. He could have just started with, what do you do when everything goes horribly wrong? And then, and then, well, let's remember this promise that God gave some people a long time ago in Isaiah 9, and that should give you comfort when every, you know, you, you could have gone some other direction, but this is not a sermon on Isaiah 9 in any way, shape, or form. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father. I believe in a God that can never fail. So when I experience failure in my life, instead of having expectations that I have made up, I need to find those moments where I have failed and get on my knees and pray to a God that can never be defeated. Enemies can defeat me. People can destroy me. But no one, no one can thwart the plan of God. No one can thwart what God wants to do. And it's in that that we rest in. It's that that we have faith in and we have hope in. This Christmas prophecy that Isaiah is bringing is a beautiful one because it talks about a child who is born and that the government will be on his shoulders forever and ever. What I've realized is my faith is based on a baby. My faith is based on a baby that was born out of wedlock, born in a humble, dirty, disgusting place. It would not fit the expectations of anyone whatsoever. But I believe I believe that it is in God's plan that he sent his son to die for us so that we can experience eternal life. My, my charge on you as we go through this season is to give up your expectations, to give up your man-made hopes, to give up Surrender and lay it at the foot of the cross. And not only do that. I see now that now this comes in that the powerful appeal to for application, you know, gonna change the tone of the voice a little bit, be more heartfelt. Okay, this is this is the basic template in preaching. He's followed every template that you're supposed to, but guess what? He's given us the template, he's given us the presentation. He's given us about a 34, he's going to give us about a 34, 35 minute sermon so everybody can get out on time. He's done all the job you're supposed to do as a pastor. However, and when I say the job you're supposed to do as a pastor, the job that obviously everybody wants as a pastor, guess what nobody got? We still don't have a clue what in the world's going on in Isaiah 9. We still don't even have a clue and how the people misunderstood the passage because he's not even explained the right understanding of the passage. But hey, that's okay. Merry Christmas. We had a little Christmas sermon today. Are, are you happy with that? Yeah, I'm happy with it. Yeah, okay. What? It's just all, it's just all, it's all show. It's, it's all show. It's just all, 
what's even the point? What is even the point? Just stay at home. What's the point? Because we, I still don't get, I, I, I still don't understand Isaiah 9. He didn't do anything to help me even come close to figuring out the text. But to come on your knees before Christ like a servant and say, Lord, these are my expectations. These are my hopes. These are my dreams. And I give them all to you. And I would rather have what you want for me, whatever that may be. And the beautiful thing about Jesus, the beautiful thing about God is that when we give to him our expectations, our hopes, and our dreams, and we lay it at the foot of the cross, I guarantee you he will give you far greater things because he loves you and he cares about you. But first and foremost, we have... Oh, that's so dangerous. That is so dangerous. So dangerous unless you offer up some kind of explanation. Hey, if you will come to Jesus as a servant and give him all of your expectations, boom, he's going to give you, it's going to be amazing, far greater than anything you want. Well, someone could come to church, say, okay, this morning I'm giving Jesus all of that. And then three weeks later, find find out they have cancer. Three weeks later, physically assaulted, raped, molested. I mean, come on, let's let's be careful what we say there. All right, let's be careful because you've got to explain exactly what you mean. If you if you come and give Jesus all of your expectations, he will give you something far greater. What What is he going to give you far greater? What? You need to explain exactly what that is. Are you saying come to Jesus humbly as a servant for salvation and then he gives you eternal life, which is far greater than any suffering you may endure in this life? Okay, you just got to make sure you explain that because, I mean, you know, people can hear that you know, hear a sermon like that. And then, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, a tornado rips through the town and kills a, a, a large portion of their family or destroys their home. I mean, come on. Let, man, pastors say, say things that sometimes it's like, do we even really think of the, of the uh, we, we, we sell it in such a way. I've said it so many times. We sell Christianity in a way that doesn't meet reality, which leads to a lot of people of becoming bitter, burnt out, and like, this doesn't work. That's all garbage because I gave Jesus my expectation and here's what I got for it. Now, now you're starting to hear a little bit of frustration. I do not like that, okay? Because I was so, I, I heard so much of this kind of Christianity sold. And the next thing you know, I was standing at the graveside of my mother. Yeah. Thank you for all of what you told me I was going to get. I came to Jesus and ended up with a dead mother at the age of her. She was 39 years of age after we never were able to reconcile our differences. And I wasn't even living at home when she died. Yeah. They, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. I mean, come on. Like, let's just be, got to be careful how you, now, I know you're going to say, well, that's not what he meant, right? It's his responsibility to say exactly what he meant. It's his responsibility because you don't want to sell something that gives people a wrong impression. Hey, you come to Jesus this morning on your knees as a servant, giving up your expectations, boom, you're going to get more than you could have ever imagined. Okay, what, get more What? to trust him that even if he is taking you to a hard and difficult place that if you have a humble and submissive heart unto him that that is far more important 
than you being blessed. Our blessing is found when we shift our hope from external circumstances to hope in the word. That whether we are rich or poor, whether we are powerful or weak, that whether we are healthy or sick, that all of this is secondary to us coming before the cross and giving our lives to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we have so many ex- There you go. So the theme, the thesis of his sermon is don't trust an external expectations. Don't trust in external expectations. Trust in Jesus. And that all came from Isaiah 9. <laughs> what in the world was I... I, I don't know. I, I, I really, I don't know what to say. 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 I really don't. I'm, I, it's an hour. I want to I wanna go back to the goal tomorrow morning here at Victory Baptist Church, looking at the pulpit that I, I, I'm staring at the pulpit that I'll be standing behind tomorrow morning. The goal is Isaiah 9. We're going to work on it. The focus is we're going we're gonna to try to do a, at least cleaning up and understanding verses 1 through 5. Then we will just mention verse 6 and 7 because that's where everyone always focuses. And then we're going to work on really 8 through 21 to the best of our um, ability. We're going we're gonna to see what we can do with 8 through uh, 21. I, I, I don't know how, how, how it put it this way. It may not be as applicable. It may not be as emotional, as touching as he just made it all to be. But you know what? If we can leave here tomorrow morning with a better understanding of Isaiah 9, 8 through 21, I think it'll be better for everyone. So that's the goal. That's the plan. I don't know how well I'm, there's going to be plenty to criticize of how I handle the text. I'm very aware of that, but I'm going to do my very best to at least make us look at the text. But that's a lot. That's just, we've had two examples. I could find more, but we don't have time to review any more sermons on Isaiah 9. Uh, but yeah, well, if you hear any sermons uh, the next, th- this weekend or next weekend, whatever your church is doing for Christmas, just pay attention to how the text is handled. And that's all I can say. All right, I'll stop right there. Uh, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. Keep working on Isaiah 9, and then tomorrow we'll try to bring that, we'll, we'll wrap this week's study up, and then we'll introduce next week's study, and uh, we'll see which direction we're going to go next week. All right, everybody good to go? All right, have a great one, and uh, I'll probably be back on the uh, air live here soon, probably, I think. That's the plan. All right, the, uh, well, hopefully it was helpful. Hopefully someone just said thank you, so thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, it's very frustrating very irritating, but it just it just shows you how the text is so mishandled. And I can understand why a pastor would want to do it because, look, do you think I want to stand behind that pulpit tomorrow and try to work through Isaiah 9, 8 through 21? No, because it's you're like, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to even handle this? How do I even approach this? Am I going to get confused? It's easier just to say, hey, you know, don't have, don't put your trust in external, you know, 
um, expectations. There you go. I, I, I could do that, but but then nobody would know Isaiah 9. So someone's got to be willing to stumble through it and probably make some mistakes, but trying to get us to focus on the text, and I'm going to do what I can. So just keep reading Isaiah 9, and uh, well, tomorrow we'll introduce a new week of Bible study. All right. Thanks. God bless.